Good job, Pastor Bodie. Now, we have been in a series we launched a couple weeks called Becoming Family. As we were uh, watching the Family Camp video, uh, I was just reminded of this really uh, cool dynamic that happens when the people of God just come together. And it happens at retreats, it happens at events. Next Sunday, during Love Tulsa Sunday, it will happen. When you just become and get in close proximity with the people of God, your church becomes family. It really does. And it's amazing because last week, we all got there on a Friday night and we're all in a cafeteria and we had a lot of people there. And so the cafeteria is full and everybody's kind of sitting with their family or a few other families that we know. And then every time we had a meal, it would get like more and more like dispersed throughout the room. By Saturday night or Sunday morning, I was fixing for plates for kids that weren't my kids that I didn't even know who they were. And all of our kids were all over the cafeteria and families were intermingled and we were all co-parenting because this kid was having a meltdown, right? And so we were just helping out this family. And something happens when you spend a couple days with each other, right? You become family. Where it's not just a place that you attend, but it's actually you feel like you're a part of something bigger. We've been talking about what it looks like to be the family of God, this diverse yet unified community of people committed to the gospel, and yet, guess what, very different from each other. Like diversity is, is one of those words, everybody de desires diver diversity, but nobody wants to give up their preferences. We all want it, but it comes with a sacrifice. In fact, I, I would argue this morning that you have to have something at the center of your community that holds you together for true biblical community to be possible. What is it at the center that holds us together? Or is it even possible? Some people say, you know what, it's not really possible. Others would say, if you have enough in common, if you have enough in common with other people. But here's what I've learned, your interests change, don't you? You like something one day and then another day you don't like it. And your seasons of life change and your, your opinions on matters change. But you have to have something at the center that doesn't change and doesn't waver and doesn't move. Here's what we're gonna talk about the next few minutes that we have. Only when the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes our primary identity is both unity and diversity possible. Only when the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes our primary identity is both unity and diversity possible. Here's what I've learned over the years. We're gonna put this image of a bullseye on the screen. If the middle of the bullseye, this yellow, is the gospel, let's call these the essential matters of our faith. We know what the essentials are? These are the things of like the deity of God, right? Salvation through grace by faith. These are things that we don't change. These are orthodox beliefs that are pillars of what we believe, which are, there's, there's several of them, but not a ton of them. Those are the things that hold us together. The gospel of Jesus Christ is enough to hold this room and this church together. But here's the temptation. You know what we begin to do? We take these outer rungs, the red, the blues, the, the blacks. You know what those are? Those are your opinions. Those are your passions. Those are the things that you think highly of. And we begin to move those into the center. You ever been there? We move them into the center of the bullseye. And we make those things our identity, our center. If you make anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ the center of the bullseye, you will destroy the very community you seek to create. You'll destroy it. Because those outside things, those non-essential matters were never designed to be the center of the bullseye. Are you with me? It's the gospel that brings us together. 
And I'll talk to people and they're like, but pastor, you know, I'm passionate about it. It's not my identity. I'm just passionate about it. I'm like, well, it seems to be the only thing you talk about. You evaluate everybody through the lens of what the, how they see that, that issue. I've been with you for 10 minutes. You've brought it up 14 times. I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, you know what? It may be your identity, right? It may be on just a passion. See, we're never going to experience true unity in the body of Christ if we find our identity in anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And guess what you have to do? You have to fight for this constantly. If your primary identity is your sexual orientation, if your primary identity is your political affiliation, come on now, shout me down, I want to preach in good. If your primary identity is your Second Amendment rights, and we could go on and on. If I didn't touch your hot button, then you just fill in the blank for me, all right? <laughs> if you fly any flag higher than the gospel of Jesus Christ within the body of Christ, you will destroy the community you seek to be a part of and create. And this is difficult from the, in the world that we live in, isn't it? I'm telling you, it's easy to talk about unity. It's easy to talk about diversity. It's hard when it becomes street level, in your face, the topic that you're passionate about. What do you do in those moments? Sociologists have termed, uh, have a term called implicit bias. Implicit bias is something that happens naturally, kind of automatically and unintentionally in our lives. When we walk into a room, we begin to judge or form opinions uh, of people based on Gender, race, disability, personality, it's just something that we cut corners in making judgments about people because we have assumptions in our head. And all of us struggle with that. All of us. And if we play that out and if we don't understand that, then what it can lead to is injustice and inequalities and all of the things. When we classify people, we make assumptions of them. And so just knowing that that sinful nature resides in us is really important, isn't it? Like that resides in me. And when I walk into a room, there are certain experiences I've had and people groups that I look at or certain things that I'll, I'll make opinions about them based on, on past things and not really who they are. Do I see people as image bearers of God or are they just a classification, a topic, an opinion? I'm telling you, it's easy to get sucked into the cultural fray or our sinful tendencies. We lose our identity as the people of God. If you go out, there's a big curved wall out here in the lobby. There's these big, colorful signs out there. Those are our five kingdom foundations. If you are in a micro church here at City Church, we spend the first five to six months of every micro church walking through in, in each of our micro churches our five kingdom foundations. You know why? Because they will change your life. And if we're not living out those five kingdom foundations, community will deteriorate, it'll fall apart. You know why? Because when you walk into a micro church, you are very different than the person next to you. And if that person is flying a flag higher than the gospel of Jesus Christ, how many know that community will be hard to thrive in? So we walk through what is the gospel? What is not, what, what the gospel is not? What are the false gospels we believe? We lean into it, then we go into identity. How do I base my identity in the gospel and nothing else? Anything else that's higher than the gospel is an idol that we cast down. And then we lean into community. How do we build our community, our, this, this uh, community of faith around the gospel and around our identity in him? And then we go into mission because how many know every community should be living on mission for Jesus? That's not optional in the Bible. It wasn't the book of Acts, the people just gathered around each other just hanging out. They were going. 
They were witnesses. They were spirit-empowered to go with the gospel. And then we talk about spirit empowerment. We do this through the work of the spirit inside of us. And I've learned it's really easy to, to get into this culture. And, and here's where we struggle some, sometimes. We develop this us versus them mentality with things in our life. You ever been there? Us versus them. In fact, our political culture has discipled the church to do this. We, we, we barriers. You're either all for me or you're against me. This side versus this side. Our political systems have discipled us into this where we live fear-based. Do you remember during time of COVID, COVID, there were so many times, so many things coming up that we had to wrestle through, so many disagreements, and you realize people were fearful. You know what people do when they're fearful? They cling to power and control. They assume the worst about people. They, they dig their heels in and, and they develop us versus them mentality because I'm trying to control what I can control when everything around me seems out of control. That's what fear does. Political systems drive fear. Oh, if, if this doesn't get passed, if this legislation doesn't happen, guess what? Your future is gonna be over. No, it's not, because my future was never in that. It was always in the person of Jesus. It doesn't mean those things aren't important, but if we put that bullseye up here, it's not the center of the bullseye. No, the kingdom of God and the gospel is the center of the bullseye. How do I live into that? I, I, talking to pastors over the last three years, there's been more of this than ever before uh, of people coming up to the pastor and saying, Pastor, um, I, you know, I, I love a lot about this church, but I, I don't know if I can attend here anymore because you don't speak enough about fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. You know what I've realized? The fill in the blanks are never about the center of the bullseye. Never. The fill in the blanks are always the outer rungs. Pastor, you're not passionate enough about what I'm passionate about. You're not flying your flag as high as I'm flying my flag about fill in the blank. The center of the bullseye is what we protect, it's what we hold tightly to. The things on the outer rungs, guess what we do? We hold them loosely. We walk in humility and grace with one another. We wrestle through them in community. We sit with people who don't believe exactly what we believe about the outer rungs, and guess what? We don't just try to convince them to come to our side of things, but we listen to them. That's what people who are demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit do. You know what people who are just trying to get you to believe what they believe, you know what they do? In fact, I, I wanted to say this so many times during COVID, I wanted to look at the church and the people of God, and I wanted to look at them and say, last time I checked, being a jerk was not the fruit of the Spirit. You ever been there? Like, you want to be right, but you're not loving. I'm fired up this morning, church. Come on now. <laughs> For all you guests who are with us, we're so glad you're here. <laughs> when you make your opinion or a non-essential matter your primary identity, you'll never experience the beauty of the church that God designed. Because you'll actually destroy what you seek to create. And this is difficult because this is a tension that you and I have to wrestle with as followers of Jesus. And if you've been around City Church, I've talked about this often, this paradigm where the gospel is at the center. And if you didn't know this, we are a gospel community that every week we lift up the name of Jesus and we do everything we can through the word of God and coming to the table to reorient our life around the gospel. That's, not, that's my job. My job is not just to give you my opinions or my interpretations or what I'm passionate about. How do we, how do we put ourselves around the gospel? If the gospel is at the center, the, the extremes would be over here legalism. 
Legalism is rules-based, it's law-based. It's, you ever been there? This is what Jesus is talking to the Pharisees about. You've made it a list of rules. You've lost the heart behind it. You have no relationship with God. You're trying to get there through obeying. How many know you can't ever do it? And it's easy to default to legalism. You ever met these people? I'm sure you're not one, but you've met them, right? <laughs> that it's like they're void of the heart and the spirit, but they're doing all the right things but probably for the wrong reasons. Legalism. On this other extreme would be relativism. You can call it like secularism, our secular culture. You know what, it doesn't even matter what you believe. Whatever you believe is good. We live in a culture of relativism, right? Anything goes. You can define truth however you want to define truth because truth resides inside of you and it's actualized and however you seem fit. That is not the ways of the kingdom of God. That will not lead to life, it will not lead to truth, it will lead to death because you are at the center of it and not God. And it's so easy to fall into these paradigms, these, these extremes. If we go to the next one that they have up here, our culture, how do we relate to our culture? Well, if you're legalist, then here's what you do. You only challenge culture. These are cultural warriors where I've talked about, like you don't have the gifts of the spirit, but you sure are a jerk about it, right? <laughs> I wanna challenge the culture everywhere. I'm gonna hold the standard for God against everything that's happening in our culture. It's so easy, and there's many churches that have defaulted to this, where here's my question to them. How do you love and redeem a world that you are against? How do I, with the love of God, redeem a world that I am continually against? What's the other extreme over here is where you only accept it. You stand up for no truth, right? These are the things that you and I have to wrestle with. We have to wade in these tensions as the people of God. If we're gospel-centered community, we both appreciate and challenge the culture around us, amen? We appreciate that God is at work. We appreciate the beauty in the culture around us. We, we appreciate when they reflect the image of God and the principles of God. And there are times where we as the body of Christ have to challenge them in accordance with God's word and what we believe to be the kingdom of God. So how do we hold intention both grace and truth? How do we take a stand in essential matters of faith while holding loosely the non-essential matters? How do we operate in humility and love like Jesus towards a hurting world that draws them to Christ without compromising our beliefs? I'm so glad you asked, those are great questions. I wanna take us to the book of Romans this morning. Romans is, is Paul's great theological discourse. Romans is uh, Paul's probably most extensive theological discourse and that he starts high, high level in Romans. Romans 1 starts with the fallenness and sinfulness of humanity as they've looked away from God and chosen their own ways. And then we get into Romans 2 or 3. How do we redeem it? It's through faith in Jesus that we're made righteous and justified. And then Paul starts bringing the plane down a little bit as he talks about living through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then it turns a corner in Romans chapter 12. And it starts to get really practical. I mean, we've been flying like 40,000 feet, and then all of a sudden in Romans chapter 12, Paul goes down to street level. He says, let me tell you how to actually actualize this whole theological discourse in everyday life. And he starts talking about community in Romans 12. Paul paints this picture of a community rooted in the gospel and formed by grace and beautifully diverse and extravagant in love. Sounds good, doesn't it? But see, it's easy to idealize these things. It's hard to actually do them. And Paul starts to get really, really specific. 
in Romans 13, and especially 14 and 15. In fact, in my head, I have the Romans reading this letter out loud, and they are like amening Paul. They're like, come on now, preach it, this is good stuff. And then Paul gets really personal and starts to correct them, and I, I imagine the church getting really quiet. Because all of a sudden, he's stepping on toes. All of a sudden, he's correcting them. All of a sudden, he's bringing up hot-button topics. Right? How many know loving your neighbor is a really great idea until you walk outside and see the yard sign in their front yard? You ever been there? Like, I'm gonna go meet our neighbors across the street and then I look, maybe not. I'm gonna meet them over here. You know, it's like when you see what they stand for or believe or you wonder what they have in common, it's one of those things, it's easy to talk about unity and diversity, hard to practice. How many know in order to experience unity and peace, you have to confront the problem? You have to be willing to confront the issues. There's a lot of people that never experience family in the body of Christ because they don't know how to work through confrontation and conflict. You avoid it, you run from it. Paul doesn't run from it. Paul writes this letter to the church in Rome. Paul's never met this church in Rome, did you know that? Paul's going to Spain. Paul writes them this theological discourse, I've heard about you, I'm gonna be coming through Rome on my way to Spain, I'm probably gonna stop in Jerusalem, I wanna meet you, if you're willing to give towards this missionary fund, that's great. I mean, Paul never gets to Spain, he's arrested in Jerusalem, eventually dies years later, um, probably under house arrest. Paul never gets there, but he's writing this church to them, or this, this letter to this church, and he's writing this letter knowing what they're struggling with. He loves them enough to confront them with the struggle. He loves them enough. There's a lot that we do know, there's a lot that we don't know, and I'm gonna go through this really quickly. We think that what happened in Rome is that there was a fire that was started in Rome. The emperor blamed the Jews. Anti-Semitism goes way back. He blamed the Jews, all the Jews had to leave Rome, even the Jewish Christians who made up the church. So guess who's left in the church? All the Gentile Christians, the pagans. Eventually the Jews are allowed back into Rome. When the Jews come back into Rome, guess what? The church has changed significantly from when they've left. Now all of a sudden people are doing different things and they're valuing different things. It's heavily Gentile. And I can imagine us, can you imagine walking into the church and all the Jewish Christians were sitting over here and all the Gentile Christians were sitting over here and you were looking across the aisle of each other like, mm-hmm, you know? Like they didn't even interact because they were so different. And yet we're supposed to be this unified body of Christ. Pretty extreme, isn't it? How many know in order to be effective at reaching the world with the gospel, we have to first get this right in here? You know how many churches don't get this right? They spend so much time bickering and arguing and fighting with each other that they can't go redeem a world that's, that's broken in need of Jesus. They never get past this. You know how many, how many times the enemy uses conflict within the church to keep the church to be effect, to effective as going? We gotta get this right. Now you have these Gentiles and Jews, they're occupying the same space. Remember the Jewish Christians that spend their entire life separating themselves from the rest of the world. 613 com commandments and laws. They came to Christ, but they maintained their Jewish heritage. So here's what's happening. There's two camps in the church, and we're about to read this in Romans 14. The Jewish Christians, Paul defines as weak. Don't read too much into weak and strong as being bad and good. That's not necessarily what he's referring to. 
But these Jewish Christians are referred to as weak because they don't believe that you should eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol. Now, we don't live in this culture, so you're like, really? Who cares about that? They did. A lot. They would not eat meat that had been strangled with blood in it or had been sacrificed to an idol. But then you have all these Gentile Christians over here like, we don't care where the meat comes from. As long as it ends up in our belly, we're fine with it, right? We don't care if it was processed, naturally grain-fed, right? With no hormones. We just care that it's here. You with me? And it's a hot-button topic for the church. The Gentiles had no religious background. They didn't believe in any food laws or holy days. They just sent, they believed it was unnecessary. Jesus is enough for us. And so they would flaunt their spiritual freedom in front of their Jewish Christian friends who were following all these rules and regulations. This reminded me of growing up with all my Baptist friends. I was the Pentecostal guy with a bunch of Baptist friends and I would make fun of them because they couldn't go to prom because we would dance, right? <laughs> I'd be like, prom was so much fun. You know what we did after we went to an R-rated movie? Come on now. <laughs> And I enjoyed every second. Of, I didn't really say that to him. But that was like flaunting your spiritual freedom. That's what the church, they were doing with each other. Paul wrote, writes Romans 14. It's the Greek word, a diaphora. A diaphora is a non-essential matter that are deemed scripturally neutral. That's what Paul is addressing in Romans 14 and 15. I'll just tell you, the church needs this teaching right here so badly. What do we do with scripturally neutral gray areas, non-essential matters, things that are still important, but they're not the center of the bullseye? Romans chapter 14, verse one, let's read it. Accept the one who is faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand for the Lord is able to make them, st make them stand. Let's stop for a minute. You're called to love, respect, honor people who have differences in opinion than you. Can we just say that out loud? That's what Paul's saying. It's okay that there's differences. That what, that's what makes this diverse. How many know we need diversity? Diversity is proof that the gospel is enough for us, amen? Diversity is proof that the gospel is changing us and transforming us, that we don't all think alike. We hold the essentials tightly, but the non-essentials loosely. Let's keep going. Verse five, one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. I want you to see this picture that Paul's painting. The goal of the church is unity, not uniformity, right? And the gospel is the proof. The gospel is the proof of the deep work of Jesus in our hearts to change us and how you actually interact with your brother and sister. Verse 10, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? 
For we'll all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. And I hope that you're getting the power of this this morning. Paul says, don't put a stumbling block in someone's path. I will never allow a non-essential matter of the faith, an opinion, a passion to divide the body of Christ and stop the work of the spirit in someone else's life just because I'm passionate about something. And the people of God all said, amen. Paul says, don't do that to each other. Don't ever fly a flag higher than the gospel. Don't allow your opinion to become greater than the unity of the body of Christ. Look what he says in verse 14. Let's keep going. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in and itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it's unclean. Just stop for a second. Look how Paul deals with this matter. He looks at him and he says, hey, for you this may be unclean. If it's unclean for you, great. You can say that. Jewish Christians, if you still want to follow your holy days, if you don't want to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols, guess what? You have every right to do that. That's perfectly fine. As long as you don't look at your brother or sister over here and say, you have to do it too. Come on now. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. I want you to look at this. We live in a culture right now, you know what everybody's declaring? These are my rights. You ever been there? These are my rights. I'm not gonna lay down my rights. Well then you're not really gonna be a part of the body of Christ. Because in the body of Christ, we're first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of heaven before we're citizens of the kingdom of earth. And laying down your rights and preferences is part of the body of Christ. Paul says, if you're doing something and you know your brother or sister is offended and you're doing it anyway, you're not acting in love. You're gonna destroy the community you seek to create. If you're going out with your friends and you're you're eating dinner and you know your friends struggling with alcohol and deciding not to drink and they're doing their best and you sit down and you order a cocktail right in front of them, you are not acting in love. Pastor, are you telling me not to drink? No. I'm telling you to be aware of your surroundings and loving your brothers and sisters well, right? If my friend's struggling with alcohol, I'm not ordering a beer, I'm ordering an iced tea. Come on now. Because I'm gonna do what's best for them. Could I order this? Sure, that's your right. But what does love say about it? What would love do in this matter? If we're gonna have diversity and unity, then it's about laying our rights down for each other. And Paul goes to both sides of the equations. He said, Jews, don't make what's passionate for you on the Gentiles. Don't place those heavy weights on them. Don't make them do that. Gentiles, stop laughing at your Jewish Christian friends and flaunting your freedom. Neither of you are acting in love. Here's this last verse, Romans 14, 19. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. What is is he saying? 
Don't destroy the community and what God's doing because of a non-essential matter. Don't do it. Don't get sucked into the cultural fray to think that your opinion matters so much that you're gonna change the world by, by promoting your opinion. That's not how it works. How do we be a radically united church in a radically divided culture? I'm gonna do these really quick. Number one, we find our identity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why every week we come to the table. We recenter our lives around the work of Jesus. Number two, we practice humility and empathy. Humility and empathy. You wanna act and look like Jesus, practice humility with one another. Humility should be a fruit of the spirit that is coming out of us if we look like Jesus. Number three, we embrace diversity. Easy to talk about, hard to practice, isn't it? We pursue it, we celebrate it. That's why we love our microchurch. And guess what? Our microchurch is not like a dating app where we have 25 areas of compatibility that we put you in. We put you in people with people in a microchurch that people that don't look like you. We put young and old together, single and married. You know why? Because you need those people in your life. You need people in life who think different or are from different backgrounds and have a different perspective of you. That is healthy. And guess what's at the center of that? The gospel. And it's enough. It's enough to hold you together. Number four is this, you actively listen. Man, Father, help us to actively listen to people who are different from you without trying to prove yourself. We actively listen. Number, number five, we pursue reconciliation. Paul is writing this letter to a church that he know is, knows is divided and he attacks the issue. We can't let this go by. We are two separate churches trying to meet in one, Paul says, and he's like, that can't happen. The gospel's enough. And last but not least is this, we pray for unity. We pray for unity. If you would this morning, stand to your feet with me across this room. We're gonna practice that as we come to the table in just a minute. We're gonna practice unity. We're gonna pray for it. There are people that see the church, the family of God as something they kind of stand on the outside looking in. Man, I don't know what to tell you. We wanna invite you to come and be a part of family. Church should not be something you attend. It should be something you're a part of where you're known. For us who desire this to be family, we can't look at other people and say, well, if you just changed, then it would happen. We have to look at ourselves, right? What in me needs to shift? What in me needs to change? Father, humble me. God, where there is fear, let there be love. Where there is pride, where I elevate my opinions, let there be humility, Father. Father, we thank you for that right now, God. We pray for unity in the body of Christ. We know that the enemy wants nothing more than to divide his church. That's the enemy's plan, to divide the body of Christ, where we'll, we are not effective at making disciples and, and, and uh, becoming disciples and making disciples because we are so busy, divided among ourselves. 
God, we place you today at the center of our lives and this church. We fight for unity. God, we fly no flag higher than the gospel. We lay aside our preferences, our rights, and our agenda for the work of Jesus. God, it it may be difficult, but it is possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for that. We thank you for that. Church, right where you at, I just want you to begin to prepare your heart to receive the body and the blood of Jesus this morning. our table liturgy here on the screen. Let's say this together. For the weary, the table is our rest. For the burdened, the table is God's embrace. For the sick, the table is heaven touching earth. For the doubting and confused, the table is God's mystery revealed. For the bitter and hurting, the table is God taking our pain. For the anxious and worried, the table is our immovable hope. For the divided and disconnected, the table is where we become one. For the unbeliever, the table is an invitation to take Christ. At the table, we declare, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. This morning, if you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, we invite you today to take Jesus as Lord and Savior. Whether you choose to come up and take the elements with us or you choose to make that decision right where you're at, Today, you can take Christ. For the rest of us, in a minute, as we get out of our seats and we come forward, we are declaring that Jesus is everything. We are declaring that what unites us in this room is not all of our differences, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is sufficient to save us and redeem us and to set us free. That the cross is even the playing field. That Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he looked at his disciples and said, this is my body broken for you. I will be ripped apart so that you can be put back together. And Jesus took the cup of the new covenant shed for you and I that will cover our sins, amen? One day we will stand before the creator of the universe and he will not see our sin, but he will see the blood of Jesus. For that I'm grateful. If you would, just right where you're at, close your eyes one more time as we pray together. I'm going to invite our prayer and communion team to come and take the elements and begin to prepare. Father, we thank you for what you're doing in us. God, we thank you for the unity of the body of Christ. God, we thank you, Lord, that there's any pride, that it would be emptied. As we come to the table this morning, God, we declare, God, we are a part of this continuing body of Jesus on on the earth. God, move in our lives. God, help us to fight for unity. In a world that's divided, in a world that's confused, in a world that's ripping each other apart, God, we choose to be united in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for your work that saves us and redeems us, God. We are nothing without you and everything because of you, Father. Lord, so we come today to the table as sons and daughters, redeemed, set free. 
knowing our future and our hope. God, we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a minute, as you feel led, you can step out of your section to the right side, come forward. They're going to rip off a piece of bread for you. You can take that, dip it in the juice, and take here or back at your seat. We invite you to come to the table as you feel led.